Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart. I'm with lovely Gary Bain. And today, we're doing another in our series about the post-war South Nazis. And this one's called A Close Run Thing. Wow. Are you excited, Gary? I'm very excited. You can tell my levels of excitement. Now, in the last uh, thing, we, we looked at uh, how they were... A, uh, the, the South Nazis were a 307 Regiment, Royal Artillery, and they were a three-battery... Three-battery, or was it two? I can't remember. They're two-battery. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, and there, there were lots of them, weren't there? And um, they, were, uh, they, they, were, uh, they, they were based at Bulwell... Bulwell Barracks in Nottingham, and uh, we'd had a look at how they'd been reformed after the war. Now, um, what, ha- what happens when they get to the 1960s? Who's in charge then? Well, they're under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Tom Foreman Hardy. And at that point, the TA had reached a sort of crisis point. All across the country, this huge shadow army was struggling to justify its existence. I mean, bear in mind, 1960s, it's only 15 years since the end of the war. It is, but the, the things have changed because the Cold War is hotting up. We're heading towards the Cuba crisis, we're heading to all these things, uh, and there's lots of serious problems. Uh, can you think what some of those problems must be? I mean, he, the, the officers and men at the time realised, uh, uh, but they, 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 what, what problem? Let's look at the problems first, then we'll look at the attitude. So, what problem can you think of? Well, I suppose the first problem lay in their equipment because it was outdated and it was still heavily dependent on kit dragged out of the stores and depots that dated back to the Second World War. Yeah, that's right. They're on the they're on the twenty five pounders, aren't they? Still, which is what, by the way, they were on in nineteen forty two. So that's one thing. Uh, a second part I'd make is that national services come to the end at the end of the 50s, and, and they're entirely dependent on local uh, recruitment. And as we've talked about in the last episode, there's a lot of things for young lads to do. Yeah, absolutely. There was also, as you sort of alluded to, the possibility of a tactical nuclear war and the increasing complexity of training for modern welfare, uh, welfare? warfare <laughs> meant any war would be long over and gone before they were ready. Yeah, and uh, now, so the, the lads realise this, but do you know what? Most of them would still have fought to the death to preserve their 
battery, their regiment. Uh, it's everybody else has to go. Uh, it's the usual British Army attitude. Uh, but underlying a lot of this is we're saying that this huge army, 350,000 or whatever it was, uh, 350 batteries or something, do they need them in the modern world? Well, you could say there's no realistic or feasible role and... Uh, they could and indeed were seen as a waste of money and resources. Now, what do you think might happen if that's how they're seen? Uh, cuts. Inevitably, aren't they? Well, there's a tranche of cuts announced in July 1960, and they're, they're, they're pretty deep, aren't they? Run through those cuts for me. You used to cut things all the time in your as head of commercial at uh, TFL. You're responsible for many of the things that went wrong with the London Underground. Thanks, mate. <laughs> now, the TA, Territorial Army... Uh, would be cut from 300,000 to around 190,000. Yeah, but that 190,000 is a bit notational. Why? Well, because units would only be allowed to recruit up to 65% of their establishment, with the rest being topped up in mobilisation from reservist TAX members. That kind of thing. So they're not really going to be what they say they are, are they? Uh, how does it go? So that's an enormous cut. Uh, it's almost in half, isn't it? Um, hang on, maths repeat. Going. 190 tonnes. Well, well, no, with the it is half. It is half. Um, how does the government now see the TA? I mean, is it as a, a, a new army to go and fight the Ruskies? Or what is it? No, it's, it's more relevant as a civil defence unit where they, they could be quickly mobilised to assist the civil power in responding to nuclear attacks on Britain. That'd have been a lot of use. Uh, <laughs> now... Um, there's another big cut. Uh, what's that? Well, it was decided that at least one camp every three years would be devoted entirely to civil defence training. Which is a lot cheaper than firing uh, batteries of guns on the, on, on the things. Um, and now, so it was the, the regiment went for its annual civil defence camp to uh, Millam in Cumbria in 1960. Now, what are they taught there? Well, they're, they're various rescue functions. They've got exercise simulating the rescue of atomic bomb victims yes. <laughs> from smashed buildings. Uh, lots of exercises, uh, lectures, lots of healthy fell walking. Wow. <laughs> Sounds a bit like the, the Scouts movement, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, how do the lads react? Well, there's a, there's a definite resistance to the new role, and this is Captain John Keyes of 426 Battery. I regarded the change in role with horror. I had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. There was no gunnery involved. I wasn't keen and didn't like the idea at all. I took every opportunity to play hooky on civil defence exercises. And that was a common reaction amongst the lads. Now, there's something else going on. Um, um, the, uh, the, the, the It's the question of where the officers come from. And this is, this is beginning to to get quite pointy, uh, if you see what I mean, in, at the start of the 60s. Yeah, uh, we sort of alluded to it in the first one, didn't we? The colonel could uh, sort of hand-pick his officers. Uh, we said they that, you know, they were recruited from the local rugby club, for yeah. example. Um, so the right sort? <laughs> yes. If, if uh, So not like you? Or, or possibly the wrong sort. <laughs> yes, that's another way. Yeah. And there's a song about this, but the times, they are a-changing. Ah, and the uh, officer's cadet system marked a more systematic method 
for locating and training prospective young officers. Now, one of the first, uh, uh, the, the first to really appreciate this, he's a bit of a hero of ours, uh, he was a bad-tempered old bugger, uh, but he was a, a cracking lad, was Lieutenant Colonel James Gunn, who takes over command from Tom Foreman Hardy on the 1st of uh, August 1962. Now, uh, he's quite a character, is uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Gunn, and this is what he said. This was the first time that anybody was made to achieve something before he was commissioned. In our case, the cadets, that's the officer cadets, lived in the officer's mess, but they worked in the ranks. They were identified by a white tab. This meant they, were, they, they had actually to show and demonstrate to the other ranks, and in particular the sergeant's mess, and specifically the battery sergeant major, that they were competent to be officers. The question I always put to the battery sergeant major was, would you serve under this man? <laughs> if the answer was, answer was no, he didn't get commissioned. It was as simple as that. Wow. Now, that's not still scientific, but it does, it does, it, 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 it is a step forward. Now, um, a gun, I said he was quite a, he was quite a bad-tempered old bugger, but he was, his heart was in the right place, but he was, he was hard on his officers. Um, and, and, and he really came down on them if they didn't perform up to their duties. He was not a laissez-faire bloke, was he? And this is what, uh, you're going to say what Major Peter Featherby, who was at that time uh, commanding 425 Battery, what he said. I think James Gunn demanded a very much higher standard from his officers than anybody had done before. He would say, I want this done. And he expected it to be done and done properly. Whereas in the past, it was all a little bit slipshod. And achievement was only about 50 or 60% of the aim. With James, you expected to get a bollock in if it didn't go properly and wasn't right. Now, um, the, the 1960s, if there's, if there's a tranche of cuts, what would you, as a successful businessman, be expecting to follow one layer of cuts? Another layer of cuts? Yes, uh, because that's just the way it is. And, and, and they, they, they become more and they become smaller. Well, one way of, of, of sort of avoiding it is, is healthy recruitment. It's, ah. it's a sort of protection against disbandment in the cuts. If you're able to attract people, retain them, you're not going to get cut. And uh, Colonel James Gunn, uh, commanding the unit, said, the survival of the regiment depended on its strength. We all knew that reorganisation was coming and little armies don't beat big armies. So if you were a little army... You disappeared, and what he means is that the South of Sazars need Sazars need Sazars. <laughs> it reminds me of the five and four five South not Sazars. <laughs> but the point was, if they were successful, if they were a thriving recruitment, and they met every target, and, they were, and and then they weren't going to be picked on. Um, and one source of recruits was among the ranks of the ex-regulars who still hankered for the military life. Now they were civilians. When you were an ex-regular, did you? I hank just hankered. <laughs> <laughs> now, as a businessman, James Gunn was accustomed to setting overall aims and objectives. He therefore sought a method of measuring his success. Well, and, and he, what was it? We, 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 his, uh, he, had a, he had a method. Critical path analysis. So in the he first looks, what, what, so he wants to achieve something and he looks for objectives. So what's, he, what's his objective? Well, what's he looking for the critical path to? Well, he's prioritising the raising of gunnery standards and he settled on the Queen's Cup competition as a method of providing him with the necessary momentum and 
and direction. What is the Queen's Cup? It was a prestigious prize which was awarded annually to the best of all the TA gunner units by the National Artillery Association. And this is what James Gunn said. I think that the Queen's Cup, to me, was the way in which one could assess whether a regiment was good. Because if you did well in that, everything else had to be good. So this is his his measuring tool. Now, for a couple of years, they just fell short and uh, and were second. Uh, by the time it was everybody's priority, no matter what. And uh, this is what uh, Lieutenant Lee Parks of 425 Battery says. Now, he, his wife was obviously unlike your Janet or indeed my Polly. Yes, you'll understand, listeners, why. The day of the final was about three days before I was due back from my honeymoon. So I had to get round my then newly acquired wife and say, terribly sorry, but I'm afraid the honeymoon's going to be a bit shorter than we thought. She was fine. No problem at all. She realised it was very important both to the regiment and myself to be there. We had to catch a plane back from Sardinia and I shot straight off to Salisbury Plain. So how would Janet have reacted had you uh, done that? Oh, she'd have been fine. Bollockless Gary, then, of course. <laughs> now, in the background, the 1964 election of a Labour government had considerable implications. Another review and more cuts. Now, this time, it's really, really stunning to the regiment. Uh, why? What? Well, the South Knots, as asked, were to be an AVR3. Now, that's an Army Volunteer Reserve. Uh, and that's uh, a CADA unit. Equipped as infantry. <laughs> infantry. And employed on a civil defence role on a massively reduced training commitment. Wow. Essentially, it's no longer to be a military fighting force. And and it's the end of the TA. Well, as, certainly as they knew it, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so this is coming. So what's the reaction of James Gunn and the regiment? Well, they're even more determined than ever to win the Queen's Cup in what was obviously... Uh, potentially their, their swan song in the autumn of 1966. They may never, ever be able to enter again. What does this swan song sound like? A swan singing. Well, I can't do it with this throat today. Oh, you are Otherwise, it would be beautiful. Now, uh, the preliminary competition was that, that was at their uh, annual camp. At, uh, that's at Devizes that year. Uh, and although distracted by the finals of the World Cup. So where are we? What, what, what 1966. Yeah, June 66. The regiment managed to qualify for the final with 425 battery granted the honour of representing them uh, now then there's an act of to me supreme self selflessness that shows what a, what a kind of man James Gunn was what what does he do well he makes a generous gesture to his chosen successor Lieutenant Colonel Peter Featherby and this is what Colonel James Gunn says I knew what was going to happen I could have stayed on to we till we lost the guns and that would have been the end but I decided it was better that I left at the end of camp and that Peter Featherby should take over so that he actually commanded a regiment and could speak for a regiment in the negotiations that were coming. My final advice to him was, Peter, you'll have to decide what your role is to be. So he's going to let him actually take over after the final camp and also, therefore, at the Queen's Cup, the yeah. actual final. And Peter Featherby shared... Um uh, James Gunn's utter determination to win the Queen's Cup that year. Now, are you notice any change? Because you remember, uh, 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 we've gone from uh, local bigwigs and... Uh, I see what you're getting, so the change in the command. To a successful businessman, and now we're at a grammar school boy, Peter Featherby, who's... Uh, 
there's a, there's a change in the nature of the the officers. But Peter Featherby is a determined chap, and he he's gonna win the Queen's Cup. He's gonna win it. He's gonna win it. So the when final, he, oh oh, because you mentioned they're in the final, was held on Salisbury Plain in the autumn of 1966. It was a complex fire and movement exercise with several component parts. Now the first part, Gary, is they had to camouflage the gun positions, and this is what Captain John Keyes four two five. Well, they're all four two five actually. Uh, said my main role as battery captain was to organise the hide the whole battery had to be deployed in a wood and we had to be able to get in and out quickly because when the exercise starts you've got to deploy rapidly everything is on speed and accuracy so you've got to get these guns out you camouflage up and do whatever you can to hide the whole battery you pick the right spots for the various vehicles to make sure you've got good air cover. And then you needed to get cover from the sides with camouflage nets. You cut branches off. You do whatever you can. We covered up our tyre tracks beautifully. When the judges came along, they had no idea where we were. And they literally walked straight past the wood. That gave us a very good start and our towels were up. Now, the battery, the gun battery then moves out of the hide uh, and uh, the, the gun possession officer, officer, gun position officer goes off to do a recce. Uh, that's to where the, a the gun... A recce. It's, they're posh. A recce. And the, 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 the gun position officer is looking for the ideal spot to put the guns, obviously, in act to fire from. Uh, meanwhile, what, what, what are the forward observation officers doing, Gary? Uh, well, they're looking uh, to set up uh, onto the OP ridge where they'd soon be called into action. Now, as a troop commander, Captain Lee Parts... Oh, he's promoted again. Captain Lee Parts was acting as... That never happened to me, as an aside. <laughs> was acting as a forward observation yes, officer. from lieutenant to captain. <laughs> yes. And uh, this is Captain Lee Parks of 425 Battery. You got to get into a position where you could see the ground at which you were supposed to be firing. Being able to get into your OP without being seen from enemy territory was another great thing you had got to do. It meant crawling. Your vehicle was often quite a long way from you, uh, from where you were, which meant you had to reel your remote cable to your radio set, reel all that out and get your stuff set out. You got to then build a hide of some sort with camouflage nets from which you could peer out and not be seen. Now, back at the guns, uh, the gun position officers uh, got, got them into their new position. And uh, this is uh, Second Lieutenant Peter Stone, 425 Battery. He says, as soon as the guns came in, the section commander would be up at the director. That's a, it's like a theodolite. Uh, passing lines to the guns to get them parallel. During firing, their responsibility was to make sure all the guns had the right ammunition, that they were acting on the orders correctly, that they were firing on the target correctly and still parallel. So you were flying around from gun to gun. And on one occasion, I was still in front of a gun shield when the gun went off. And basically, once you've done that, you don't do it again. Actually, if you're in front of the gun barrel, <laughs> you definitely don't do it again. Field of light. Field of light. Is that a Greek? It's a, it's a sort of thingy, measuring thingy. That's the other light. Oh. Is that not what it's called? <laughs> now, at the same time, at the observation post, they had to get themselves ready. Now, this was the nitty-gritty of their training with endless practice to ensure clear fire orders were given. And this is Captain John Keyes of 426 Battery. Your first job at the OP is to try to establish the grid reference of the centre of the target. 
A lot of skill is involved in this with false crests, dead ground and all that sort of thing. You had to make sure that you could actually see the fall of shot when it came over. You tell the command post the grid reference, the type of target and what sort of engagement you were anticipating. Air burst for troops in the open, smoke for a smoke screen or normal high explosive. There was a specific sequence of data which you sent down to the guns and next thing you would be told that there was a round on its way. Time of flight, 15 seconds. 15 seconds later, you would expect to see the fall of shot. The OP ACK would count you in and then you would expect to see the impact. You would then be able to see, uh, to see left 200 if it fell 200 yards to the right of the target. If you've landed short with your first shell, your second one must, must be beyond the target. Then you can bracket down as required until you hit the target and then you fire for effect. You get a lovely crump. And it's very satisfying. Now, the one who sent down the first fire orders was the bloke with him. That's actually Captain Lee Parks. And he sends down those first vital fire orders. It's the first shot of the whole exercise. And this is what Lee said. I'm on first name terms. I was given my target. I sent down my grid reference and all this information to the gun position. They were very slick, very slick indeed. And I hit the target with my first round. If you're good, it's common. It's not uncommon, but that just happened to be at the right moment. I was very pleased. It's not that common. I'll bet it was. Now, watching is uh, the guest of the regiment, uh, Colonel James Gunn. Uh, He's their honoured guest and he's watching the competition. He's done so much to get them there, hasn't he? It's very important. Uh, What do you think it was like for him? Well, for him, it was a proud moment and a culmination of much of what he'd been striving for over the last four years of command, so recently completed. And this is Colonel James Gunn. The happiest memory I have is of the final of the Queen's Cup. I was listening as a bystander and I heard the ranging gun go off. Bang! And then we heard, bang, 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 bang. And I thought, my God, what's happened? Lee Parks, the OP officer, had hit the target first round and he went straight to fire for effect. And that set us off. No waste of time. Target round in one. That was because of good OP observation post training. Learning to map read carefully and to be able to accurately give the pinpoint to target. Oh, what's your happiest memory, Gary? Is it when you met me or or Janet, I suppose? Neither. Hang on, I want to know what it is now. It had been a marvellous start to the competition. The competing batteries could not match the South Knot Hazard's combination of luck (laughs) and skill. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. And it was a great moment for Colonel Peter Featherby, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, but as he, as the regiment get the, receive the cup, it was fantastic. Um, And uh, why is it important? Well, it was, as, as, said earlier it was just as well they won it for it was indeed to prove their last chance as a regiment because the government had it been there'd been lots of campaigning to save the ta had it worked no it was being trimmed uh not so much to the bone as to the soft marrow within purple prose again yeah i don't know why you do it and this is captain john keys we took the guns home to bullwell on the sunday and on the monday we became AVR3 and the guns went to ordnance. We were shattered. You just couldn't believe that you'd been judged to be the best TA gunner regiment in the United Kingdom 
only to go home and lose your bloody guns the following morning. That was rubbing it in something rotten. Now, in a way, I understand the feeling of the lads completely. But in a way, looking at it with a, you know, a logical ad, it's almost inevitable, isn't it? Why? Well, the government have been engaged in defence cuts aimed at reducing the size of the standing regular army and it had furthermore abandoned the concept of mobilising TA divisions as complete entities in time of war. Now, as the divisions one by one disappeared from the army list, it was inevitable that there was less need for artillery batteries. Of course. Uh, So what have they become? Without the guns, what are they? Well, without the guns, they become an amorphous infantry unit and they were duly issued with their first modern-style combat dress uniform. All right. I wonder if that's that same sort of combat dress I wore, presumably. Taffeta sort of... Yes, yes. And this is Lieutenant Chris Dibb of 425 Battery. The idea of becoming infantry was appalling. It horrified everybody. Absolutely horrified everybody. Quite a lot of people were totally phased by the idea of being infantry. I wasn't impressed at all. I realised how well we'd been looked after as artillerymen and what a soft life we'd had all these years. We wondered what the heck we were trying to do. What we were trying to achieve. Infantry training had no appeal whatsoever. But if if it didn't make me want to leave because I... But it it didn't make me... It didn't make me want to leave because I was a South Nuts Hazar with an acorn cap badge. So what's that? That's priding unit. Absolutely. That's almost obsessional priding unit. Now, at this stage, we'll take a short break. 45 there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Now, it may have been inevitable. That was a big sigh. <laughs> it may have been inevitable that, that, that there would be cuts. But what rankled many of the officers involved was that there seemed to be little common sense in the plans for an alternative role for the unit. So they hadn't thought anything through. They just cut and left them with no real role. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea of a civil defence role wasn't new. Yet as the realities of nuclear war became more apparent... Is that a lot of big bangs? Many were sceptical as to what they, or indeed anyone, could achieve in the face of a nuclear strike on Britain. So in other words, it was just going to be so bloody awful that it... Oh, yeah. There's something else. There's another point as well. What would If they were going to be a civil defence force in a nuclear war, mm. who, what, what, what does it mean, in effect, for, the, for, for yeah, those lads? I think what you mean is they also realised they had to train to be ready to step outside their communities and help police the state in the most dreadful and hopeless of circumstances. And policing the state could involve things you don't want to be involved in. Absolutely. It? And this is 2nd Lieutenant Peter Stone of 425 Battery. We learned about controlling riots and demonstrations. All this silly thing about the man in the front with a banner who would hold a sign saying, keep quiet, or something. I think it's dis- dispersed, but never mind. <laughs> we had to have a diarist to keep a record of things. One learned about monitoring nuclear fallout. <laughs> How was Nottingham going to be governed when nuclear war came? We really thought the threat was real. Whether the proposed solution was the optimum, I think one could form one's own view. How about he means, yeah. <laughs> but the threat was certainly real, and we went through the training for real. Now, this is this is the thing. This is... Uh, when we said before, start of it, they didn't take Russia as a threat seriously. But this is this is after uh, uh, what was it that big crisis thing? This is after that. This is I mean you must remember. Oh, you're too young. People used to have nightmares about running from nuclear fallout. It was real, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, a further change pressed upon the unit was the necessity to admit women into their ranks, and Lieutenant Gillian Hines and several other women joined the unit for the first time. Now, the majority swallowed their objections to the new arrivals. Yeah, the, 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 we've got to remember this is very different times. This is the 1960s. It was a, it was, we, uh, it was a sexist society. So how does Major John Keyes react? They were, to say the least, unusual members of a Hussar unit. They came in as soldiers and they were drilled as soldiers. They carried rifles and they took their part in everything that was going on. It was difficult to accept but it became a fact of life. So, uh, not enthusiastic, but reasonably tolerant for the time. Yeah. Now, despite all the changes, there was one thing that marked out the South Nazis, and that was a determination to carry out whatever role they were assigned to. No matter how fanciful or irrelevant, they would do it to the best of their abilities, while all the time concentrating on repositioning the unit so that whatever the future held, they were in the best possible state to survive and prosper. So they, 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 they think it's crap, but they're going to do it as well as they can and try and just find a new role, yeah? All right? Uh, now, then something else happens. The government does something else. And you've got to realise the background that this is... Go- this is desperate times. What does the government do next? Well, in January 1968, the government moved to actually close down, uh, or perhaps more accurately, suspend the Territorial Army. So what does that entail? What are they on about? What's what's going on, Gary? Well, although units could for a while at least continue to exist, they would no longer receive <laughs> either pay or expenses from the government. And there's no doubt that the government had not thought that through at all. 
and this is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Featherby. The whole thing was totally unrealistic. No soldier was to be discharged. Recruiting could continue, but without pay or training expenses, and no camps to be held unless TA units wished to go to camp at no expense to the army. It was a farcical situation. You couldn't have created anything more ridiculous if you'd tried. What were they trying to achieve? They realised they didn't want any home defence regiments, but they hadn't thought out what they were going to do ultimately with what they'd got. Now, I've got sympathy for for uh, I've got sympathy for the Labour government trying to cut it as well, but I've got sympathy for um, people like Peter Featherby who are just caught in a sort of cleft sausage here. Um, uh, the TA was it efficient? Be brutal. Come on, be honest. Well, probably not. Uh, but it was undoubtedly true that the country still needed a reserve army of some sort, and still does today. And still does today. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, what, what they, what do they need? I think they needed some sort of process of careful reform rather than a, a high-handed distraction. Because that's what the the government has done. Um, well, if the TA was disbanded, then all the privileges granted by sympathetic firms and industry to their employees serving in the regiments that had also end. No pay, no expenses, and unsympathetic employers. What a lovely prospect that is. Yeah, it's terrible. And if you think about it, um, you've got a lot of... When you were at TFL, because I interviewed a lot of them, they were brilliant employers employers towards the, the reserve forces, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They, 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 they supported members of the staff who served in the reserve forces. Uh, and without that support, what do you think would happen? Well, exactly. Nothing. People wouldn't be able to do it. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Featherby, now of headquarters. We lost about a third of the men straight away. People just fell by the wayside and disappeared. Pay is important to the territorial soldier. A lot of people in the TA are unemployed and they use it as a method of supplementing their unemployment pay. That's, that's a good point, actually. Think about the times we're talking about. Unemployment's on the rise. You know, this was a way of bringing in extra income. And if, you know, if you're married... Well, even if, even if not, it, it brought in some low wages. Well, endemic, it brought in extra wages, even if you were working. Now, some employers, how, I mean, some employers were still cooperative and, and obliging, if you like. Um, um, yeah, so, and, so, and the soldiers that re- re- remained, they were either blessed with obliging employers of uh, well, considerable rich. personal means. You mean rich soldiers, yeah. <laughs> or they had an utter determination to stick it out until the good times came back. I've been waiting for the good times all my life. You have, Gary. Um, now... Uh, so, so who was absolutely determined? Who led from the front in this whole business? Well, one man in particular was utterly resolute that the history of the South Nazis would not finish in 1968. Can we use the expression, not on my watch? We could in this case because it was Colonel Featherby, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Featherby, and he was determined to fight on with a true backs-to-the-wall attitude. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Featherby. We were of the view that government hadn't thought it through, that they hadn't actually killed it stone dead, or otherwise they wouldn't have allowed you to recruit more soldiers. Because if you recruit someone, you've got to give them a uniform. So we were using army facilities and equipment in a roundabout way. 
there was a great loyalty to the South Notsuzars by a large number of NCOs and soldiers who enjoyed coming to the drill hall and enjoyed weekend training. And they would continue to do it without pay for a period of time. It would have been totally unrealistic to have said they would continue to do it for the next 10 years, but with the thought that somebody behind the scenes was working on a possible plan to save the situation, a large number of them continued to appear. But on the other hand, as we said, they lost a third of them straight away. But yeah, so recruitment, is that that's going to be important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's a paramount importance. They had to maintain a, a viable number of men if they were to have any chance of surviving as a unit. Yeah, but so they lost a third. Did they keep the rest? Well, after the first mass exodus, there was a steady draining away of, of men as they reached the end of their personal tether. And women by this stage. Yes. Uh, and uh, you, yes, I mean, you can understand it. Uh, they're also now technically infantry, or, uh, although are they still in batteries? Are yeah, they they'd, they'd maintain the three battery structure, uh, even though they were soon reduced to, to shadows and each battery commander devoted themselves to trying to recruit more men. Now, the, the South Nazars was... I, we've talked about this, a county regiment in the past. Now, all those people, those the great and the good, you've got to remember, they're still living. They were still living in the 90s when I interviewed them. But the, the likes of the Barbers, uh, Birkins, uh, Warburton, they're still alive, aren't they? And they still had considerable clout in high places. Well, there, there are things like, uh, what, what's that thing, uh, 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 the county, or, yeah, thingy bob of the county, that, that bob of the county, this bob of the county. They're, they're, they're important people. Yeah, and previous honorary colonels, you know, several of them, uh, several of the previous commanding officers, they all rallied to the South Knots banner in their hour of need. Of these, the most important contribution was undoubtedly an outstandingly generous financial don donation from Colonel Tom Foreman Hardy, which allowed the South Nazis to make an unparalleled gesture of confidence in their future as a unit. So what, what did he do? What did, what, 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 well, if the government would not or could not finance their training properly, then they'd finance their own annual camp. Wow. So, what, so what happened was Foreman Hardy gave a large donation and the other rich officers chipped in a bit. But it has to be said, Foreman Hardy, who hasn't come across this podcast, he came across not too good. But this is a crucial thing he's done as honorary colonel. So what does Featherby say about him or about the camp? We decided to have a go at a camp. We raised money from industry and officers. We decided we would go to Warcop for one week's training with a joint officers and sergeants mess and another ranks mess. We did infantry training over the Warcop ranges. We had managed to acquire some rifle ammunition and a number of vehicles to carry us about. We gave all the men £5 pocket money for the week. Wow. And we ran the messes ourselves. It was quite an enjoyable week. We had visitors, including General Sir Walter Walker, who came to see this rather strange animal known as Featherby's Private Army in camp at Warcop. It just showed the ability of the South Notsuzars to survive in difficult circumstances. I'm trying to think of the value of £5 then. That's quite a lot. That's quite a lot. Oh, that's a week's wages. Yeah. Uh, well, but of course it was a week and of course they're, they're not necessarily getting anything from their employer so this is what the money's for and the ammunition and everything else um, so this, this, is, is this real training 
I suppose it is, but it's also something else, isn't it? It's 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 something that you'd be familiar with from industry. It proved to be a supremely effective public relations exercise. So it attracts a lot of attention. Uh, and what are they doing? Well, they made sure that they couldn't be forgotten or ignored. Now, meanwhile, what's Featherby doing? Because Featherby is not standing still, is he? He's he's looking, no, looking, no. looking, 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 delving into every nook and cranny of the British Army. Uh, looking for a viable new role for his unit. Uh, yeah, and he writes a letter which reviewed three possible roles. One, to become uh, a 105mm gun battery. Not likely. No. Two, to train specialist OP parties and to retain their present structure with minimal assistance from Ministry of Defence. So that's, that's, uh, that's the third one, yeah. Right. To, so uh, he goes... Let's be a realistic. They're not going to make them a 105mm gun battery. They're not going to retain their present structure without any help. Well, it's the second one, the so OP the second parties. One, the OP yeah. parties. What does he say about that choice? Because he explains it quite well, doesn't he? The First Army in Germany should have in the gunner set up three OPs per battery. Observation posts. But the establishment at that time was two OPs per battery. I see where he's going here. Therefore, there was a shortfall of one OP per battery in all the artillery regiments in Germany. They felt that was a task which could be given to the TA on the basis that in the event of war with Russia, the South Knots Hussars would not go to war as an individual unit. It would go as a series of individuals to make up reinforcement OPs. Well, now that's quite clever. And uh, they've, they've, they've re- because they've got a high profile, because they're... they're that because they stand out, they get the job, don't they? So what do they reform? What does the 307 Regiment become? Because it doesn't become a regiment, does it? No, it reforms the 307 Battery with 12 officers and 120 men. So what are they going to do? They're going to provide OP parties... Uh, and uh, there's something else. Hang on a minute. Why do they need 120 men? What's going on? Well, now they'd have access to a number of guns to allow them to train their OP parties at firing camps. So they're going to have a gun troop to practice with. Yeah. And this is... (laughs) That's that's cunning. (laughs) And this is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Featherby. We thought this was a very satisfying role to play. We were back as gunners. We were at Bullwell in one drill hall with four guns, OP parties, vehicles, signals, and all the rest of it to train. So stuff they knew, stuff they, they you know, they wanted. So the guns are just a training aid. Yeah. But they are guns. Uh, and uh, they've got every... And, but really, they're OP parties. That's what they're going to be. Now, uh, so 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 let, let's pay tribute to Peter Featherby. He's done brilliantly, hasn't he? Yeah, he must have been mentally exhausted by that stage. And, or and knackered, as you would normally say. <laughs> knackered. And uh, he stood down as commanding officer in March 1969. Do you think they'd have survived without Peter Featherby's unique combination of brains and drive and just an and, and ability to work with the former the former um, honorary commanding officer? You know? Yeah, it's unlikely. Now, many other noble regiments desperately wanted to survive the cull of 1968, but the South Knot Suzars, although reduced to a single battery, remained active on the army list. They had survived. De do de do de do de do de do de do de do. Yeah, well, I think this is a great story. People say what people say. Why are we doing this? Well, it's because this is a. No, people say stop doing this. Oh yeah, yeah. Why are we doing this series about about a peacetime army? Well, the point is. 
They didn't know it was a peacetime army. At the time, it was all important. They had that there, there was a Cold War on. They didn't know what was happening. Yeah, I mean, there's there's reference there to to the British Army uh, being in Germany, British Army of the Rhine. Why are they there? It's no longer a, a force of occupation, is it? No, it's uh, it's part of the defence of NATO. It's NATO. It's 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 important, and we know there wasn't a world war. But they didn't know that then. And I the don't tip, know that. The tip, well, there might be one now. <laughs> Have a look at the newspaper. <laughs> this might never come out. <laughs> this would survive a nuclear holocaust. Us and cockroaches. Yeah. Cheers, Pete. You have a lot in common with a cockroach. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?